Hey guys, welcome. Glad you're joining us online. I'm Dan, and uh, one of the pastors here at the Norton Campus Grace Church. If I've never met you, we'd love to hear from you. I'd love for you to come. Check out one of our services if you don't have a church home. Uh, 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock, and we also have a 5.30 Sunday evenings for those who work in the morning or can't make it Sunday morning or just don't like to get up early. But uh, we'd love to meet you, and uh, I'd love for you to shoot us an email that you're kind of tracking with us, Book of Ephesians. Got a lot of cool things going on around here this weekend. Uh, Feed My Starving Children, a bunch of people gathered together so that we could pack meals to send to kids who don't have enough to eat. So we're praying about that. So excited we get a chance to be a part of that. We're in this conversation, Book of Ephesians, and hopefully you've been tracking. If this is your first time, we've been in it for a while. I might want to go check some other talks out that we've had. We're reading it. We're reading it with a pen. We're talking about it with others. Hopefully you're reading it. If you haven't, start Monday chapter 1, Tuesday chapter 2, right on through the week. But what we said is this. You can break this thing down in first three chapters. He's, it's kind of like he's in the heavenlies. He's like, here's all the blessings for those who are in Christ. Here's your identity. It's like all these important theological truths. And now we have flipped the page. There's a hinge, so to speak. Uh, and the hinge is what Pastor Ethan taught us, the prayer of Paul. And now all these heavenly realities, spiritual blessings show up in our life here on earth. It's like, how does it walk? How, If that's true about those who are in Christ, what's it look like in their life? It's kind of like the practical feet on the ground part of it. Last week, JC uh, led us. Uh, if you listen to it, man, powerful, right? Three big takeaways for me. I don't want to be a bearded baby. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go check out a sermon. Great illustration. Second big takeaway is this. I want my own can of bear spray, don't you? Yeah, I read an article after he shared that story. Somebody in the same part of the world where he was at, grizzly bear attacked him, right? I want my own can, and I want to make sure my wife heard what I said before I apologize, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out his sermon. It was a powerful, powerful sermon on unity, humility, and the maturity in the body of Christ. I believe this, that Jesus isn't going to totally make sense apart from community, apart from the body of Christ, the family of Jesus. I hope you're part of a church family. I hope that you'll identify the church family. If you're not from around here uh, and you don't have a church family, I hope you'll find one in the area where you're at. But we're glad we can supplement that with this teaching. Today, I want to take it a step further. And we're in Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like to just take a minute and pray that God would meet us here and then kind of unwrap this. We got some heavy things to go through today. So God, I'm praying that you would teach us. I'm praying that we'd be really good hearers of the word, even more so, God, that we'd be doers of the word, that we would respond to the truth with a walk that is worthy as Jonathan taught us last week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, one of the things I love, and even some of you have emailed me, right? I always appreciate it. People tell me, man, you look nice, or that's a nice outfit, or you kind of dress, a, that, that, that shirt, that, that sport coat. Man, I'm all doctored up for you guys today, right? And I always appreciate that. I always appreciate when people tell me that I look nice or that my clothes look nice. But I need to be honest with you. I have no sense of style. Never have, probably never will, seriously. Now, to be honest, when I was single, when I was single, I just had my old comfortable clothes. Uh, I grew up, we were at blue jeans, flannel shirts, clod hoppers. You know what a clod hopper is, right? Yeah, that's what we'd wear, right? I, I, I like my old faded 
uh, sweatshirts. I like my jeans. And about the time they're getting holes in them and just kind of looking all faded, that's when they're getting really comfortable. And that's when I think, man, I'm starting to look good in this, right? Uh, I keep my t-shirts forever. Don't throw them away. Uh, I, I came into marriage with t-shirts that I had from middle school and high school, man. And they came with all kinds of holes in them. I'd cut them up when they got to that point. They also came permeated with my middle school, high school smell of sweat. Uh, I I enjoy kind of hanging out uh, Saturday, my day off. I love hanging out in my old comfortable clothes. And, and when I was single, man, that's that, that was my wardrobe, right? I mean, I couldn't match real well. I don't like to shop. Didn't keep up on the trends and the fashions. Well, then I got married. I got married. <laughs> Anybody with me on this? And I still had some of my middle school, high school t-shirts. Uh, they were comfortable to me. I mean, they were my go-to shirts. It never dawned on me they looked hideous. never dawned on me they smelled offensive. That, that never dawned on me. I just felt good in them. They felt really good to me. I thought they looked good on me. In fact, they were just starting to get comfortable. To be honest, uh, it never dawned on me that they might offend other people in public. It wasn't until I got a new relationship. I married a new relationship. I married Jennifer and with that came a new revelation. Her name was Jennifer and that new revelation came with a new recognition that some of this stuff's offensive. Some of this stuff looks hideous. Some of this stuff's out of style. And that new recognition led to some radical repentance. You tracking with me? (laughs) And a renewed mind. It gave me a whole new perspective. Like I didn't know, man. And that radical repentance led to a renewed mind which led to some replacement in my closet. All of a sudden, I start washing the car with these rags that look vaguely familiar because she'd take some of my t-shirts and all of a sudden, I was washing the car with them. Anybody with me on this? Yeah. My new relationship led to a new revelation, led to some new recognition that I didn't have before because I had never been married to her. She's right. And it led to radical repentance because my mind was renewed and then I start replacing, right? And I got to be honest with you, uh, I, I'm kind of a tough sell. I'm kind of a tough sell. Uh, so just between you and me, and I don't know if you know my wife, and, and don't tell her, don't email her, don't Facebook, whatever. I kept some of the shirts she tried to throw away. I kept some. In fact, I, I, I kept some and I brought one because I thought it'd be really, really appropriate to wear today. Uh, it's really, really comfortable, and I really, really like it. Uh, it's a shirt that I think is very appropriate for what I'm doing here today, and I think you'll agree. Uh, it's got these comfortable little holes in it. it got the sleeves cut out, and it says Sermonator on there. So I'm going to wear it if you don't tell my wife just because I feel comfortable in it. You're saying, Dan, are we talking about your wardrobe? Well, kind of, but not this wardrobe. It's what Paul was talking about today in Ephesians 4. It's not what's in your closet, but it's what's in the wardrobe of your and my heart as followers of Jesus. We come to Christ with an old wardrobe, so to speak, of our attitudes, our values, our thought patterns, our habits, our life before Jesus. And what he's saying is when we get this new relationship, say yes to Jesus, there is a new revelation that shines in, so to speak that brings a new recognition of all those things that form the wardrobe of our life. And that new recognition leads to a radical repentance. 
That radical repentance because our mind has been renewed. We are adopting the mind of Christ and it leads to a replacement. All of a sudden, the old is gone, the new is here. That's what he's saying. Look at your Bibles. That's what he's saying in Ephesians 4, verse 17. He's kind of insistent. He said, I tell you, and look at this, I insist, that same Greek word word we get martyr from, I insist, he's like, I want to make a point here, and Jesus is standing here doing it with me, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He's like, you got to change your wardrobe. Now, he's not talking about you got to dress different. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying you got to change the wardrobe of your heart. What he's basically saying is, I don't want you to conform any longer to the pattern of this world. I, I, I don't want you to live like you did before you had a relationship with Jesus because your relationship with Jesus changes everything. That's what he's saying. He said, here's what happens when you were not a follower of Jesus. It was a mind that was futile. You, you, you lived in the futility of your thinking. Now, literally, that word means this, that there was a vanity of your mind. You deceived yourself. You thought this looked good. You thought this was going to be good, right? And, and, and your mind was deceived. You were darkened in your understanding. You ever meet somebody that got dressed in the dark? I have. Sunday mornings, I get real early, dressed in the dark. My wife comes and I'm like, oh, man, you went out with that, <laughs> right? What he's saying is this. We dress up our lives in the dark, so to speak, because there's no revelation, the truth of God, right? And he says, because we're separated from the life of God, so that we're ignorant, naive. And so our hearts become hard. We're just like, this is the way I'm going to live. I'm going to do it this way. And what happens is that hard heart leads to reckless living. They, we lose all sensitivity. We give ourselves over to sensuality. We're going to do, if it feels good, do it. You ever hear that? And he says, we indulge in every kind of impurity and, and we're full of greed. We have this fear of missing out. So we're just going to keep going after it, right? More and more and more. He says this, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ, new relationship, we're taught in him, new revelation, in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off. Put off, circle that in your Bibles, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. He said there's this old self, this old wardrobe, these old attitudes, patterns, thought, thoughts, habits. He says put off because of this new relationship. That's what teaches, not a rule. It's the relationship that leads to my recognition. Well, how do I put it off? Two words, write it down. I have to recognize and repent. Here's the deal. I will never repent of what I don't recognize. I'm not going to repent of what I don't recognize. And if I don't repent, I'm going to continue to repeat. I'm going to say that again. I will never repent of what I don't recognize. I never would have recognized that my stuff was out of style, that if Jennifer hadn't jumped in, Jesus, now I'm in this new relationship, I need to recognize. Confessing my sin is calling it what he calls it, agreeing with him. So I got to recognize, I got to repent. But then he says this, be made new in the attitude of your minds. What's that? I recognize, I repent, and then there's this renew. Like, like it's this renewal of mind to be made new in Jesus. Christianity isn't about being nice, it's about being new. That's what Christianity is. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. 
He says this, but instead be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. He says that when the, we have a new attitude of our mind that leads to a new formation spiritually, it's a transformation. He says, I want you to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on. So he says, put off the old self, made new in the attitude of your mind, new revelation, and put on new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says that I have a, my mind is changed, my heart is transformed, and I will change the wardrobe of my mind. I'm going to put on, right? I'm going to replace. The word there that I would write down is this word replace. I'm going to recognize, I'm going to repent, I'm going to have a renewal of the mind because of this new relationship I have with Christ, and I'm going to replace. You're either in Christ or you're not today. I hope you are. If you're not, he loves you and died for you. The gospel says that when you place your faith and trust in what he did for you at the cross, that you can be forgiven of your sins, be part of the family of God. You're either in Christ or you're not. For those who are in Christ, this new relationship leads to a new revelation that leads to a new recognition that leads to a radical repentance that leads to, ready? It leads to a renewed mind. It's like, oh, okay, that leads to a replacement. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes, we're just going to do this. Just gonna, I want to walk through the closet of your heart with Jesus, this new relationship. Because that's exactly what Paul does. Look what he says. Therefore, each of you, he's going to put off, put on. Each of us must put off falsehood. What's he saying there? He's saying recognize and repent of the falsehood in your life. John Calvin said this, lying is a monstrosity. It doesn't matter what he said as much as what Jesus said. Jesus said this, that when you and I lie, we are speaking the devil's native language. That Satan is the father of lies. It was a lie at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, that got this thing spinning out of control in the first place. Did you ever notice this, that lying or falsehood wears different faces? There's the, the face of duplicity that I am somebody different in private than I am in public. Uh, there is the face of deception. I purposely lie to mislead other people. There's the face of distortion, uh, simply twisting or manipulating the truth in order to promote my purpose or maybe just to save my bacon. I don't know, right? But, but I'm going to distort the truth. Or, or how about this? We're going to diminish the truth, telling half-truths that are actually, if it's a half-truth, it's a what? Yeah, it's a half-lie. <laughs> uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22 says this, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who tell the truth. Man, I've got to pay attention. I, I need to go through the inner closet of my life and ask some hard questions. In fact, I want to go through the inner closet of my life, and I want you to do this with Jesus. And I need to ask some hard questions and see if I recognize falsehood when Jesus walks through the closet of my life. I need to ask myself, am I a polite liar? <laughs> uh, when somebody asks you to do something, I'd love to, but I'll be out of town. But I really won't be out of town. I just don't want to do what they're asking me to do. Uh, how about this? Am I prone to exaggeration? I use the words always and never simply as leverage in my conversation. Or how about this? Am I an inflator? 
When I tell a story, it's always bigger than it actually was so that people can be impressed with me. Do I diplomatically hedge the truth? Do I stretch the truth? Do I fail to tell the whole truth? You ever hear somebody say to you, hey, to com be completely honest with you, and you want to ask the question like, uh, are you not always completely honest? Uh, how about this? Am I unwilling to confront? That's a form of falsehood. Am I silent when I ought to speak up? Uh, do I know the truth and just won't say it? How about this one? Am I given to flattery? Telling a person what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Do I deliberately make misleading statements? Maybe to make me look better, maybe to make someone else look worse? Do I plagiarize? Do I take credit for someone else's work? Do I cheat? Maybe some students are watching this. That's a form of falsehood. Uh, do I struggle with duplicity? Am I duplicitous? You're saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? Am I the same person in public that I am in private? Uh, falsehood wears all kinds of different faces. I could go on and on and on, right? Literally, the word he uses there is strip off falsehood. Why do we lie? Can you just write this down? Self. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to promote ourselves. Usually, it's out of fear. So when we get afraid, I lie because I don't want to be found out. Or we lie to promote ourselves. So fear and pride kind of work together, right? I want to save my bacon or I want to make sure I promote my agenda. Look what he says. He says, put off, strip it away and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We're all members of one body. Write this down. Recognize and repent of falsehood for sure in my life. I got to just call it what he calls it. But then I'm going to replace it with truthfulness. I got to ask myself, where is falsehood showing up? And then I got to replace it with truthfulness because lying and deception, he says, tear the very fabric of community. He says, we're part of one body. I've watched lying and deception tear marriages apart. I've watched it rip open wombs and families that take years to heal. And I will tell you this, that lying and deception and duplicity can destroy the fabric of community and the testimony of a church. And he says, replace it, recognize it, repent of it, and then run into truthfulness. It's not just a behavior modification. It's not just a rule to follow. It's inviting the one into the wardrobe of my life who said, I am the way, the what? the truth and the life. It's inviting the one into the wardrobe of my life who said, I am full of grace and, anybody know? Truth. The one, Jesus, that I invite into, it's a new relationship, is the one who said this. He said, it is the truth that will set you free. When you and I walk into the washroom of the gospel, pride is scrubbed off, the very thing that drives many of us to lie. Because at the foot of the cross, there's an even ground. And not only is pride scrubbed off, but fear is laid aside because I am encountered by the one who is full of grace and truth. And when I encounter Jesus, now I can speak the truth with love. When I encounter Jesus, I will keep my promises. And I'm not going to overpromise, underdeliver. I can keep my promises. And I'm not going to make a promise just to impress you that I can't keep. 
that when I encounter the one who's full of grace and truth, the one who is the truth, and the truth will set me free, then who I am in public can match who I am in private. And I can admit when the truth is revealed against me. See, here's the deal. The gospel, Jesus, this new relationship brings a new revelation that brings a new recognition that falsehood in the presence of in partnering with the one who's the way, the truth, and the life needs to be stripped away. Paul's not done. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. What's he saying there? I'd write it down this way. Recognize, repent of uncontrolled, unrighteous. I wrote those words on purpose, anger in my life. Anger is not necessarily bad, but uncontrolled anger is. God is slow to anger. We talked about that a few months ago. I think what is implied here is that anger is not always wrong. Injustice and evil can and should stir a righteous anger in us. God is slow to anger, but the truth is much of my anger, much of your anger, doesn't look a lot like God, which is what Paul said. Put on the new self, created to be like God. I think if I walk into the wardrobe of my heart, and I want you to do the same there, and I invite Jesus to do that, I must ask myself if I recognize anger, uncontrolled, unrighteous anger in my life. I gotta ask myself, do I have a predisposition of heart that is angry? You see what he said in the verse? He said three do nots. He said in your anger, what? Do not what? Sin. In your anger, do not sin. When my anger causes me to lose control, I've probably entered into sin. I've probably stepped outside of anything that's righteous anger. To lose my temper means I'm probably losing the battle. When my anger causes me to gossip, slander, cancel, cuss out, or maybe arrogantly and out of an attitude of legalistic superiority judge others, it's taking me down a path of sin. When I begin to discipline my kids out of anger because they embarrass me, inconvenience me, I've probably allowed anger to control me not my new relationship with Jesus. When I'm quick to anger, it might be a sign that I'm allowing my anger to waft over into sin. James said this, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. He says, in your anger, don't sin. Then he says this, in your anger, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What he's saying is don't let anger stick around. Don't let it brood. Don't let it fester. Don't, if you're a married couple, don't go to bed back to back is what he's saying. I like that. Stay awake till you work it out. Don't let it fester. In the family of God, in the church of Jesus, among brothers and sisters, he's saying don't let anger fester. In fact, Jesus gave two teachings that give us some indication on how we can deal with this. Matthew 5, he said, if you come to church and you realize there's somebody that has something against you, he says, leave your gift there at the altar and go reconcile. That's how important this was to Jesus. And then in Matthew 18, he says, if you got a brother and you know that he's in sin and there's an offense, you go to him. He's saying, don't let it fester. In the community of believers, anger that festers gives Satan a foothold, and that's what he says. Don't sin, don't let the sun go down, and don't give Satan, the devil, a foothold. The Greek word is topos. You can forget that. It means a place of entry. One author said it this way, sustained anger opens the door for demonic influence. 
Festered anger always gets worse. Wow. One author wrote it this way. I thought it was interesting. In your anger, and then he wrote, or your frustration, or your disappointment, or your discouragement, your confusion, uncertainties, bad day-itis, attacks, do not sin, don't give the devil a foothold. It begs the question, why do you and I get angry? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, right? There's a lot of reasons. Sometimes I think it's because we feel out of control. We're addicted to control. And anger is a result of feeling out of control. People don't act like I think they should act. People aren't doing what I think they should do. Things aren't going how I think they should go. The kids aren't cooperating with the agenda that I planned. The vote didn't go how I voted. And what happens is we feel out of control and we think we can do it better. And the bottom line is that many of us, the reason we get angry, if we're honest, we want to, if we're honest, let's just be honest, we want to play the role of God because we think that we could do it better. It's interesting that sometimes what causes us to be angry is because we wish God would show up and exercise revenge. And he mentions this. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. That makes me angry when somebody does something to me. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, here's what I want you to do. As far as it depends on you, live at, circle that word, peace with everyone. Wow. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I'll repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heat burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's he saying here? I would write it down this way. I'm going to recognize and repent of uncontrolled anger. I'm trying to play the part of God, and I'm going to let God play the part of God, and I want to replace it with his peace. I went to the Cove last year, and they, they, they gave this quote Billy Graham gave that I thought was interesting. He said this, It's my job to love others. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict others. Sometimes we try to play the Holy Spirit. He says, my job to love others. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict others. It's God's job to judge others. And he says, when I get those things confused, uncontrolled anger is going to start to fester. Right? So I'm going to repent, recognize. When you let Jesus into the wardrobe of your heart... What do you see? What do you see? Has there been anger festering in you for years? What would it mean for you to replace it with his peace, to surrender control, to let him play the part of God? What would that mean? Paul's not done. Anyone who's stealing must steal no longer. Pretty straightforward. He says this, recognize and repent of stealing in my life. This is not surprising to anybody watching this. It's one of the big ten, right? Don't steal. Not surprising to you, but what may be surprising is if we look in the wardrobe of our life and heart to find out if we're stealing. You're like, I'm not a thief, right? I'm not a thief, Dan. The truth is we're always working the angles. Like, it's just comfortable to us. Uh, We wouldn't, I'm not a robber. I'm not a thief. I remember uh, uh, as an elementary age kid, 
uh, in VBS, we would go and we would take our money and they would give us pennies. We had this thing called the penny parade. You can, you know, but 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 I, my dad back then gave me a dollar, which was big deal for us. And I remember I went to the little old lady behind the table, and I hope she's not still living. If she is, Louise, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, because I had a dollar and I slid it, and she's going to give me uh, some pennies. But I noticed she didn't take my dollar, so I slyly slid it back. She gave me my pennies, and I said, oh. And she's like, oh, you have $2. You're like, wow, that worked out pretty easy. I was working the angles. I wanted the boys to win, right? I wanted my team to win. I wanted more pennies. And so I slid it back, and I begged for forgiveness, right? It might be why I, every year here at our Bible camp, get a pie in the face, and my team loses. I don't know. It might be God's way of judging me. But we have a way of working the angles. I wonder if we invited Jesus into the wardrobe of our life if we would find there's stealing. Shoplifting, robbery are obvious, obvious, right? But what about stealing at work? Statistics say this 75% of employees have stolen something from their employer. More than 30% of business bankruptcies are attributed to employee theft. $50 billion a year in employee theft, U.S. Department of Commerce says. I got to ask myself, do, do I pad my expense account? Stealing. Uh, do I use the company credit card for wrong purposes? Stealing. If I'm a boss, do I pay my employees fair wages? Do I, if I'm an employee, do I work, do I report more hours and I'm actually working? One in four employees surveyed say they do. Do I overcharge and overestimate a job? Do I fail to report accurately to the IRS? Uh, do I accept more change than is coming to me? Do I renege on a debt? Do I owe somebody something and I just refuse to pay? So it's interesting to me, we'll, we'll freely borrow from a credit card and then not want to pay it back. Be frustrated when they're asking for, how about this? Do I give back to God what he gave to me? Malachi chapter 3 says, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? Yes, how are we robbing you, God, in tithes and offerings? He says, You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, a tenth of that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room, enough to store it. I can ask myself, am I stealing? Like, it's like, this seems so cut and dry. When I invite Jesus into the wardrobe of my life, and I like, check out, I want you to go with me to work. I want you to hang out with me in my business dealings. I want you to do my taxes with me. Am I stealing? He says this, don't do that, but must work. And then I would circle this doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share. I would circle that. I would say this, repent and recognize and repent of stealing in my life and replace it with sharing with others. The impulse to share is directly counter to our impulse to steal or hoard. He says, work, do something useful with your hands so that you may have something to share with others. The impulse of the body of Christ that's been baked in from the beginning is to share with others. Read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. It says this, 
Acts chapter 2, verse 44, the believers were together, had everything in common. Did you ever read this? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. How about chapter 4, verse 32? All the believers were one in heart. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Uh, why would it be our impulse to share what we work so hard for? It's mine. I worked hard for it. You know why? Because we've invited Jesus into the wardrobe. We have a new relationship that brings a new revelation. There's new recognition. Now I see ways in which I'm stealing. I want to share. Why? Because I have this new renewed mind that adopts the mind of the one I have the relationship with, that's Jesus, and I'm going to replace it. Because when I invite Jesus into the wardrobe of my heart, I'm inviting in the one who did all the work at the cross so that I could share in all the blessing. Did you ever think about that? Why would it be my impulse to share, Dan? Because it's your story as a follower of Christ. It's my story. That at the cross, he did the work with his hands and his feet, nailed to a Roman crossbeam that allows you and I to share in the blessing of redemption and forgiveness, in the blessing of being part of his family, in the blessing of a forever hope, in the blessing of the inheritance that we have in him, in the blessing of every spiritual blessing in Christ. Sharing is the instinct of the follower of Jesus because it's our story that he did all the work. He did something useful with his hands so that we could share in the blessing. Paul's not done. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Like, let's invite Jesus into the wardrobe. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Just write this down. That word unwholesome literally means rotten, I'm going to recognize and repent of rotten, unhelpful words that grieve others in my life. That, that word is fascinating. It's kind of rotten like a banana, a, a vegetable. Our words have power. Would you agree with that? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. Proverbs chapter 18 says the tongue has the power of life and death. And yet our tongues can be very hard to control and can do great damage. James chapter 3, the tongue is a small part of the body, makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Little spark in the, in the forest, bam. We just saw that in Hawaii. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is that. World of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. My tongue has great power to do great damage or great good. Paul's saying here, don't let any rotten, when, when, when I have this new relationship, this new revelation, this new recognition, leads to a radical repentance, I'm going to look at my words because Jesus said my words are the overflow of my heart. They come from here. And I'm going to ask myself, are my words rotten, unhelpful? Are they unkind, unnecessary, and do they grieve the Holy Spirit of God? I'm fascinated by the fact that that is in there. Let's just do this for a minute. Do my words build up or do they tear down? Am I someone who's always putting others down? You know, if you're that, it's probably because you're trying to put yourself up. <laughs> do I say things that are unnecessary? Do I share things that are confidential? 
I call that gossip praying. Hey, you know, I have this prayer request. I know you won't share with anybody else, but how about this? Are my words filled with constant sarcasm? You know, when there's constant... Listen, I'm not killed. I get it. Sarcasm can be fun and funny. When there's constant sarcasm, people don't feel safe. There's not security. Do I speak words against the person who's not there to defend themselves? Augustine had a sign on his wall. I love it that read this. He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. I love that. Uh, Paul went on. He, he went on to say, hey, listen, when it comes to the talk, uh, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I got to ask myself, do I tell off-color jokes? Oh, Dan. Am I prone to profanity? Do I tell racist jokes? Do I tell sexual jokes? Am I eager to retell the dirty story? Is my conversation vulgar? Are my words angry or the healing? Do I find ways to justify my vulgarity? You're saying, what do you mean by that? I'll give you an illustration. I'm sure will stir. How about let's go, Brandon? I see people with, with the bumper sticker and t-shirt. Even people that will go into church with this kind of vulgarity. I sat with a guy in my office one time and I said, what does that phrase mean? He looked at me very awkwardly. I said, what does it mean? The actual words that it means. He wouldn't answer me. And I said, does it mean? And I filled in the blanks. He said, that's what it means. I said, all I'm doing is masking a vulgar, profane way to talk about our president. That whether you agree with him, like him or not, that we're instructed to pray for. I think what he's saying is, like, can, can, can I let Jesus just check my words out for a second? Because he says this, I want you instead, what's helpful, building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I think what he's saying is, repent of the rotten, unhelpful words that grieve others and replace them with helpful words that grace others. Kind words, necessary words, beneficial words. Listen, write this down somewhere. My words are a gift not meant to be a weapon. I love the way these two psalms put it. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent, great of, uh, of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing. What a prayer in your sight, Lord. Come into the wardrobe of my heart because my words are the overflow of my heart. I want my words to be pleasing. I want my heart to be right. I want there to be a new revelation. Show me the rotten ones. Show me the ones that need to go. Show me the ones that are unnecessary. I had a guy in my office here uh, recently and a brother, he's a brother and I love him and he was just flying. Man, he was effing and he's going to talk with somebody. He's angry with him. And he's calling this and that, and he says, you know, what do you think I ought to do? I said, the first thing I think I would do is I'd make sure I dip, listen, dip your words in the blood of Jesus. Can I say a lot of my words might not make it out of that? A lot of his words that he was letting fly wouldn't make it out of that? I want to dip my heart and my words in the blood of Jesus. 
How about this? Paul goes on and he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. John MacArthur says, Bitterness is smoldering resentment. Rage is brooding grudges. Slander is defaming another character. Here's what that means. They're rooted in unforgiveness. Here's the point. Recognize and repent of unforgiveness in my life. I wonder, we've talked about this many times, so I don't need to flesh it out as much as we have in the past, but I wonder if Jesus looks through the wardrobe of Dan's heart if he would spot some smelly old unforgiveness that I've hung on to for years. Truth is, we have something in common, you and I. We've all been hurt by somebody. We all have had the opportunity to forgive them or not forgive them, but when we don't forgive them, you know what it does? It changes me. It destroys us. Frederick Buechner says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last to some morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself and the skeleton at the feast is you. What does Paul say? He says this. He says, instead, be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Write this down. I'm going to repent of unforgiveness and I'm going to replace it by extending the forgiveness that I've experienced from God. I've talked about this many times that I've been forgiven by God and I'm going to extend, not because they deserve it, not because I feel like it, because I've experienced it and I'm going to let it leak from me out here. Even, listen, the hardest thing is to forgive those who aren't asking. I'm going to invite Jesus into the word of the one who forgave me and, and, and he sees the old smelly shirt of unforgiveness and I'm like, I just like hanging on to that. I'm glad he didn't hang on to it. But I'm glad he hung for my forgiveness. You okay? One more. But among you, there must not even be a hint. Circle that. Sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, greed, are improper for God's holy people. I'm going to recognize and repent of sexual immorality. I'm going to invite Jesus into my sexual life. I wonder... If you and I would even recognize this in our lives, sex and sexuality in Ephesus was very similar to what we experience. I would say that we've taken more of a Freudian approach to sexuality where it is the, uh, Freud would say it was the, the most important impulse, the thing that was the central aim of man and that God fits under there somewhere. That sex has this power and it requires a focus. Everybody doing what they want to do. One author said this, does anybody realize that nobody blushes anymore? That was an interesting way to put it. We, like the Ephesians, live in a culture that deifies sex and our sexual impulses. Many times when I talk about this, people get offended by it. Or there's other people on the other side of the aisle, they want me to go hard after this while hiding their secret sexual sins. What he's saying is, when it comes to sex and to gender... The follower of Jesus dresses their heart differently. Their heart is bent differently. He says, not a hint of sexual immorality or impurity. No hint of anything that would be outside of God's vision for sex. God's vision for sex. He's the one who created it. It's powerful. 
was to be contained in the covenant relationship between a man and a woman, husband and wife. I could ask myself, am I having an adulterous affair, sex outside of marriage in any kind of way, whether before marriage or being married to somebody and having sex with someone else? Do I entertain lustful fantasies? Do I make space for pornography and sexual joking? Do I tease in a way that flirts with the edges? Am I trying to appeal to someone sexually outside of the confines of marriage? Am I using sex, even in marriage, for something other than God intended? Are my impulses becoming desensitized to God's vision for sex? My wife and I were watching a show the other day, and almost like this scene came on, and this it, we looked at each other because it almost went right by us. We're like, oh my Lord. Sex and sexuality are not bad. God thought the whole thing up, and he designed it on purpose. It's pretty cool powerful it's so powerful that he said it must be contained in this thing called marriage he designed it he has his purpose it's intended to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage and i think what he's saying is this i'm going to recognize and repent for i'm outside of his vision and i'm going to replace it with jesus vision of sex and sexuality he has a vision not anti-sex but I would say this, the things that are screaming in our ear, the old clothes that we seem to be comfortable in, many times are outside of that vision. And I gotta ask myself, am I gonna walk with Jesus into the wardrobe of my sexuality and my thoughts about gender and my thoughts about sex? And am I gonna invite him into that? And here's the deal. Am I gonna listen to him and surrender to him? I asked a guy the other day, I said, listen, are you okay if Jesus disagrees with you? And then what's your response going to be when he does? Because if I'm not, I'm not following Jesus. I'm asking him to follow me. See, I'm asking Jesus to come into the wardrobe and to tell me, what do I need to strip away? New revelation with a new relationship. And then what do I need to replace it with? What do I need to replace it with? Here's the deal. Some of you like me. You're like, man, Dan, most of those things, I'm good, but there's just that one shirt, that one thing that you're just like, I'm not getting rid of that. I got rid of everything else. I, I've done pretty good. I've gotten rid of everything else. And I think the encouragement is this. It's like, I'm going to hang on to this. And I think he's like, what would it mean for you to take that thing and just strip it away? And say, really what I want more than anything is what Jesus wants. I want to surrender to this new relationship. I want to recognize what this new revelation has brought. And I want a radical repentance that agrees with Jesus and replaces it with something. Replaces it with something that looks like Jesus. And that demonstrates the power of the gospel at work in my life and my heart. Heavy teaching today. Invite Jesus into the wardrobe of your heart, follower of Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, my prayer is this, as you invite Jesus into your life. He loves you. He died for you so that you could be forgiven and part of the family of God forever. God, I pray that you would confirm, clarify, and seal this teaching in our hearts. 
Some of us have closet work to do. So I pray that you'd help us to recognize, repent, to allow our minds to be renewed by the new relationship we have with Jesus so that we could replace the old with this new that is made to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.